Good morning. Let's stand and open up God's word this morning. We are in the study um, of the book of Galatians. And this morning we'll be reading Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. If you're using one of the black Bibles from the back, you can find the passage on page 975. Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25. We are reading God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not be conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you. You may have a seat. Well, hi, my name is John. I am a member here at Redemption Gateway. I'm a Bible teacher at Gilbert Christian High School. I was a pastor for four years in Southern California. So it is a massive privilege for me to serve you this morning as it is whenever Luke allows me to, to preach. They're in, uh, in Seattle right now getting some training to bring back to our church and bless all of us. And so it's a blessing for me to do this. Now, as you've got... Galatians chapter 5 there. Hold on to that. Keep that with you. We're going we're gonna to dive into this passage and we're going we're gonna to see how God actually transforms us. What, what happens in the life of a person where God's spirit, where God himself actually makes a home inside of your heart, makes a home inside of you? What in the world is that like? That's totally different than everything we've seen before. Before we get to that though, Back in December, I got married to my lovely, wonderful wife, Katie. And then a week later, we got on a plane to take a journey to what seemed like the other side of the world. I think it actually is the other side of the world, Tahiti. Now, we had a great time. We had this overwater bungalow. And we, I mean, we, we, it was absolutely beautiful environment in Tahiti. But I'll be honest with you, I was a little happy as the journey was coming to an end. I, I mean, I loved our hotel, I loved my wife, I loved the walks, you know, I loved the ocean, it was just beautiful, but I was not really a fan of Tahiti itself. I'm sorry to all the Tahitians in the room, but I just, for me, it had a weird language, French, I didn't understand what they were saying, I pictured them making fun of us constantly in French. 
this complete lack of normal food. Like there was absolutely not one chain restaurant on this entire island. I did not, there's nothing. You could not, there's no Subway, no McDonald's. Not like you would think, okay, McDonald's is everywhere. Like I, there's a McDonald's like right next to the, to the pyramids in Egypt, but there's no McDonald's in Tahiti for some reason. And everything cost a huge amount of money for a pizza, and two drinks, it was like $75. No joke, no exaggeration, $75. And so, you know, I'm, I'm loving, you know, I'm loving it's our honeymoon. I wasn't excited about coming back to real life, but there was a tiny part of me that was happy our journey was coming to an end as we were landing in LAX. I was thinking, English, yes, normal food, English. Again, like, I was so excited about those things as we were landing. Now, I can't say that there is any part of me that's excited about coming to the end of our journey in Galatians. I don't know about you, but I've loved hearing about the gospel every week. I've watched the gospel transforming me and transforming the people in, in my community group. Like we are, we are seeing God work so much. I want to keep going. Like for, an, I want to like slow down and, and stay here for a long time because this book has powerful things to say about God and, and salvation and about how he works in our lives. And what we've seen in the book of Galatians over these past couple months is that this very gifted man is using his mental energy to fight for grace. It's why the name of the series is, is Fighting for Grace, because that's what Paul does in this book. This idea that, that, that you and I, that human beings, are not made right with God and are not kept in right standing with God based on our performance. That we are made right with God and we are kept right with God every second of every day by grace. By God giving us what we don't deserve, which is a relationship with him. He's been trying to convince this church or this group of churches in modern day Turkey that, um, that human beings only experience salvation when God treats us not according to what we deserve, but according to what we don't deserve. Treats us the opposite of what we deserve, which is grace. This is the gospel. And this good news of salvation by grace is, is under attack in these churches because what the truth is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. What started happening in this church is that salvation was by faith in Jesus and faith in me. That I've got to trust Jesus for my salvation and I've got to earn my salvation by my good works. That if I can just put some kind of hope in myself and if I can put my hope in Jesus, that together we will produce our salvation, my salvation. And that this, the, the, the sad thing about this is that as you read, as we've seen the book of Galatians, Paul's confused, he's even a little discouraged because these people that seem to be saved under his ministry began to really enjoy the taste of what's called legalism, this idea of earning our salvation. And the danger is, is that if we don't fight for grace, this heresy can slip past our defenses unnoticed and that we won't smell it. And then instead of smelling it and going, that's repulsive, we'll smell it and go, oh, can I have some of that? Instead of it being Tahitian food and going, I don't want anything to do with that, it'll be American food. Oh, give me more of that. I like that. You're like, that dude is so American. It's gross. But that's the way it goes. So, 
briefly put, to kind of help, okay, what's this legalism? That's a big, that's a word, you know, we don't use that every day. Legalism is doing good works to earn our salvation or doing good works to keep our salvation. Or it's calling disobedience to man-made rules sin. Or it's calling obedience to man-made rules righteousness. It's taking, it's either saying, in order to be saved, I need to keep all of God's rules and then I'll be saved. Or in order for me to be saved, I've got to keep some of these man-made rules. In order for me to be safe with God, I've got to keep some man-made rules. And if I keep these man-made rules, then I'm going to be okay. Now, subtly or obviously, we're prone to rebel against the thought of there being absolutely nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Absolutely nothing we can do to keep our salvation. We push against that idea. It doesn't feel right that God's acceptance of us is based completely on the perfect performance, the sinless life of Jesus, and not my trying but failing to do good lives. We think like God is like our, uh, our parent in this sense, that just like you look at your, parent, your kids and go, well, you know, you're not the valedictorian, you know. You're, you know, you're not going to be the next Michael Jordan, but I just love you anyways. We think that because, we, because our kids don't measure up and we accept them anyways, that God's like, well, my kids, that, that my human beings down there, they don't measure up and I accept them anyways. So what we do is we say, well, I try to do really good, but I fail. But God grades on a curve, so I'm good with that. We find out in the book of Galatians that a person that's hoping to say, hey, God, look at my resume. Isn't it great? Shouldn't I be here with you in heaven? Haven't I earned enough credits with you to buy my spot in heaven, buy my good works? Paul says to to live like that, to think like that, to hope in yourself, that's legalism. That's also proof that a person is not saved. Why? Because they've rejected Christ and his perfect life and said, you know what's really going to get me in good with God? My life. It's awesome. He says to, to live like that, to think that, doesn't place us in a good place, puts us in a bad place, puts us cursed by God. Now, because of that tension in us, again, we've called it fighting for grace. Not we, I had nothing to do with that name, but it's just been given to me. But it's a good name because not only is Paul fighting for grace in the book of Galatians, but as I've tried to just explain to us, we need to fight for grace every single day, all the time, basing our ultimate acceptance before God on on keeping rules, legalism, basing our continued acceptance of God, by God, of us, based on rules, that's also legalism, which is why we've we've talked about this idea of gospel-centered sanctification, Jesus-focused growth, the idea that the same gospel that saves us is the same gospel that sanctifies us, that the way we get into Christianity is the way that we grow as Christians. It's through the gospel. Clearly seen in chapter 3, verse 3, where it says, having begun by the Spirit, having been saved by the Spirit, he asks, so are you now being perfected by the law, by the flesh? Hey, are you now going to follow those rules and the strength of your own desire to do better and try harder? Is is that really going to do it for you? Rhetorical question, answer, not so much. In fact, I'd argue every command in the New Testament to grow after a person has experienced salvation comes from a short 
or long explanation of the gospel. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm convinced the Bible teaches that there is no sanctification, there is no growth, unless it is gospel-centered. And so we, we're seeing these ideas, but these teachers are saying, you know what? If it's all about grace, it's going to present a problem. Because if you talk too much about grace, it's going to lead people into a second danger. First danger, legalism. Second danger, just as deadly. It's going to keep you from experiencing salvation. He spent five and a half chapters talking about saving yourself through your good works. And now, as we get to the last half of Galatians chapter 5, he spends this, just the, the last half of chapter 5 talking about this second danger, which is license. Legalism and license. License, the thinking here is that just as a driver's license gives you permission to drive in the United States, so grace gives you permission to sin. It gives you permission to disobey. It gives you permission to disregard the commands of God. It gives you permission to be a law unto yourselves. I have a student who doesn't go to this church at Gilbert Christian, who is constantly saying this. He's the only person I've ever met who's at, who claims to be a Christian and has put words together in a sentence like this. Jesus died so I can party because he forgives me for partying no matter what I do. And he forgives me no matter what I do. He forgives me. So Jesus died so I can party. Jesus died so I can sin more. And so these teachers are going, that's wrong. That's, that's off. You need to honor Jesus. Jesus is the king. You need to obey him. And if you talk too much about grace, that's what that's going to lead to. So here's the solution. Some rules. Here's some solution. Your performance. You need to pick it up. You need to try harder. You need to do more. What's wrong with you? You need to make some kind of effort here. You need to get committed to this. And Paul goes, no, that's not right. That's not true. Gospel freedom doesn't mean I can now do whatever I want. It means I can finally do what God wants. Because before the law and my sinful nature and my own rebellion forced me to do only what I want to do. I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't do what I was made for, which is to obey God. I'm stuck only obeying sin, only doing my own thing, only rebelling against God. The gospel comes along and frees me so that now I can do what I was created to do, which is live my life for God. That that's where the gospel comes along and says, you're free. You're free from the law in the sense that you don't need to keep these rules to be saved. You couldn't do it anyways. And you're free now to obey God, to love God, to live for him, not from some slavish desire like, are you going to accept me now? I'm not sure. Like, I didn't keep all the rules. I tried to keep some of them. Is that good enough? I don't know. Now it's, I'm accepted. I'm a child. Now I want to please him. Now, I, I love him. There's, there's this internal motivation now that's, that's coming out of my life. And, and I didn't, it didn't, it's not something that I began with, but it's something that happened in a, in a moment that suddenly it, it stopped being like, oh, gosh, I got to do these Christian things, and I really don't want to, to, well, I, I want to do these things now. What happened to me? Where did that come from? 
Paul says that happened when you were saved. And it happened because at the moment you were saved, God's spirit began to live inside of you. And at that moment, as we're going to see in a second, there became this, this war started inside of you. And that's what Paul's talking about in chapter 5, verse 16. When he says, the answer to legalism or license is not, let's find a middle road between the two. Let's, let's, let's take the good of legalism. Let, let's take like the rule following. And let's take the grace and let's just combine them and find some middle road. Paul goes, that's not the answer. The answer is a third road. That's not in between the two. It's actually above the other two. It never touches the other two. That third road he gets at when he says, chapter 5, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. This idea of walking by the Spirit is give the control of your life, thought, words, deeds, actions, to the third person of the Trinity, to the God who lives inside of you. Give control of your life to him. The false teachers are saying, without the restraining influence of the law, of these rules, let's say the Ten Commandments, without those constraining you and saying, you know what, if, if these laws weren't there, it would just be sin anarchy. People would just be going nuts, sinning everywhere. Paul says, you've been freed from this restraining influence of the law to enjoy a much stronger, more transformative influence called God actually living inside of you and producing what the law could never produce for you. The law, this set of commandments in the Old Testament, sat there and said, this is how you'll be accepted before God, and you compared your life to it and went, guess I'm not accepted. Or you just closed your eyes to all the things that you did wrong. You looked at it and went, well, I'm really trying, and isn't that good enough? No, it's not. Here you have Paul saying the way that... that, that that we actually live for God is not like, okay, I've really got to try hard this time. Submitting to the work of the Spirit in your life, his control, his leadership, and following him. This word walk speaks of conduct, lifestyle, how you behave, how you live your life. This, this idea of walking by the Spirit speaks of why you're able to live how you live, how you obey. Where is this influence, this guidance? Like, why do I want to do these things and not do other things? Why do I want to live for God in this moment with these people? Why is there this tension inside of me? It's because inside of the Christian, there's this new motivation these new desires, this new control that's begun to take over inside of you. And that is the work of the Spirit in your life. He has a very important role. And I want you to, I got this quote, which I think is really helpful, which says, Just as Jesus Christ is the primary person behind justification, the Holy Spirit is the primary person behind sanctification. A believer can no more sanctify himself than he could have saved himself in the first place. He cannot live the Christian life by his own resources any more than he could have saved himself by his own resources. Holiness comes only from the Holy Spirit. Holy living does not come from our performance for God, but from his performance through us by his own spirit. 
So here is God living his life through us, being conformed to the image of Christ, living like Jesus, being like Jesus, meaning that, that he is producing the life of Jesus, not by, okay, here are these rules and you better do it. It's something that he does, like, like, like that song says, from the inside out. But I want you to look back at our text, verse 16. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is not two commands. Walk by the Spirit, will not, do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Instead, this is one command, walk by the Spirit. And this is key. If, you, if you're like, the flesh, what is that all about? The flesh is that influence, that force, that, that disposition within the Christian that, that opposes God. There are these two forces inside of us. I want to please God and I want to rebel against him. That, that within every Christian is this fight and the flesh seeks at every moment to control your thoughts, control your activity, seeking to take you away from God's word, his ways, his will, into finding your joy and your satisfaction in sin. It is constantly pushing and moving you into that direction while the spirit is constantly pushing and moving you in the opposite direction. Where it said, when it says there, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, that's not a command, it's a promise. It's a very strong promise that to walk by the Spirit is to disobey the flesh. And it's like this, built in the, into the command to walk to your right is the strong, insu- is the strong assurance that I'm going to do what? I'm going to leave the right. I'm going to leave the left, Right? Built into the command to walk to the right is the strong assurance that I'm going to leave the left. Built into the command to go to Tahiti is the strong assurance that I'm going to do what if I obey it? Leave Phoenix. In the same way, to walk by the Spirit is to not gratify the desires of the flesh. That the Spirit-controlled internal life that, that comes out of the Christian robs the flesh of its power and influence. And all of that has been introduction to get you to this one point. You've been encouraged, we've been encouraged, to fight for grace. And what this passage is telling us is that when the Spirit controls your life, when the Spirit is influencing and dominating and and making the life of Jesus come out of you, that's how you have victory in the fight for grace. That here we are saying, okay, how does this happen? How do I, that, that this is how it happens. God produces his life in us. It comes out of us, and that's where we have victory. That's how we, we fight for grace. Fighting for grace is not optional. It's this ongoing moment-by-moment battle that Paul describes in verse 17. You, I'm going to read verse 17, and you're probably going to hear that and go, oh, that's like, that's like my life. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To walk by the spirit is not to gratify the desires of the flesh because, like it says there, they are opposed to each other. So to help you follow along, I've labeled this first section the conflict described. Paul is describing this conflict in verses 17 and 18. So you've got the conflict described. Verse 17, you've got the spirit and his influence, the flesh and its influence. And within every Christian, it's like two fighters in the octagon. You know, that it's like 
two women that grab the same shoes at the Nordstrom half yearly. You know, like it's on between these two forces. And you know this if you're a Christian, right? There's no treaty in this war. They're locked in battle. Each one is bent on defeating the other. The other. When you want to choose evil, the spirit opposes you. When you want to choose um, the good, your flesh opposes you. There is this battle going on. You don't, want to do, you don't want to do what the spirit wants when the flesh has the upper hand. You don't want to do what the flesh wants when the spirit has the upper hand. And within every Christian is this battle. Paul describes this in Romans 7 and 8. He says, I, don't, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you relate to that? Chapter 7, verse 21 of Romans, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Evil is right there with me. He says in chapter 8, verse 13 of Romans, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That there's this invisible internal war Which explains why you and I have this vision of who we want to be and who we actually are. And that there's always this disparity between the two. This passage explains, (coughs) sorry, this passage explains that that will always be our experience. Because inside of us are these holy desires to live for God and never sin. And at the same time, we don't even meet our own desires. We don't even meet our own standards, let alone God's standards. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, that's me, that may be because you're a Christian. And that's because you're, you're, you're identifying with this battle that Paul describes in Romans and Galatians. But what I want you to know is that you, you can't grow past this conflict. There's not some like experience that you can have that'll just suddenly open your eyes and you're like, I don't experience the conflict of the flesh anymore. All I do is righteousness. I never sin. That no matter how many experiences you have, no matter how much you read your Bible and pray and serve and give and everything else, this conflict will be your existence until you die. But the idea is like, so are we just, you know, well, that's great news. Thanks a lot. Really hopeful. And I'm struggle with sin till I die. That's awesome. Well, on the one hand, that's why you need to fight for grace, right? Because it's a constant reminder that I stand before God, not based on my own merits, not based on my own performance, but on the performance of Jesus. But at the same time, I don't want you to think that these two are equal foes. Like, this desire to sin and the Holy Spirit are the same. They're not even close to the same. The Holy Spirit is God, the omnipotent, all-powerful God. But what what the danger is, is to pretend that you're not vulnerable. The the danger is to think, that's not happening to me. Or, or you know, I've, I've gotten to this level of Christianity to where that's not my experience anymore. Whether you're a newbie or you like been a Christian for 80 years, this is your experience. And Paul is letting us know this because the legalist will come along and say, 
I know how to fix that in your life. I know how to get you some kind of hope in the midst of this conflict. I know how to give the spirit victory. Here's the conclusion. Here's the goal. Here's the the help that I can give you. Here's some rules. Just follow these rules. And in verse 18, he says, no, that's not the answer. Chapter 5, verse 18, he says, but, contrast, here's all of this stuff you don't want to do. Here's this conflict going on. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. There's a lot of confusion. What does it mean to be led by the Spirit? People think like, okay, I don't know what job to take. I need to be led by the Spirit. Or the Spirit is leading me to marry this unbeliever. You know, or just to marry somebody, period. The Spirit, this is not talking about decision-making. What job should I take? This is not talking about individual will of God for your life kind of stuff. The guidance of the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, is talking again about control of your life, leadership of your life, guidance in your life. Not like, what's that feeling? Okay, I think you want me to talk to that person. That's not necessarily wrong, but that's not necessarily the Spirit either. That it's not about decision-making. It's about, it's about character. It's about controlling action. It's the Spirit leading us to live for Jesus in individual situations that we either say yes for or no for. We follow the flesh. We follow the Spirit. We follow his direction or we, and, and disobey the flesh. Or we follow the flesh's direction and we disobey the Spirit. But to disobey the flesh and obey God is not do better, try harder, a tough it up kind of obedience. It's a dependent, humble obedience that gets its drive, its influence, its motivation, its strength, not from ourselves saying, okay, I'm just doing it better. I, you know, I got rid of that stuff and, you know, and I'm going to do better. It doesn't come from that. It comes from, comes from God so that there's no room for boasting. Like if you were to build, I don't know, if you were to build a model airplane or something, in one sense, you could say, thank you, Jesus, for helping me build that model airplane. But there's no like, command in the Bible, or there's no promise in the Bible that says, I will help you build model airplanes. You know, it's, just, it's not there. If it's there, help me find it. I haven't found it yet. But they, so, so in a sense, it'd be kind, I mean, you could say, like I said, oh, yeah, I mean, God is sovereign. He helps me do all things. I can do nothing apart from him. So, Jesus, thank you for that. But the idea here is that if you're, you're trying to live for God and you're struggling, but you finally got victory, you know, you finally, I don't know, read the Bible in a year, or there's some habit that you had that you finally broke, you can't really say you broke that habit is what this is talking about. It's saying that God used you. God gave you the strength. God gave you the motivation to will, to, to want to break that habit and to actually break it. That this is something that God does in us. And so the question then, after describing this conflict, is who's getting the upper hand in your life? The flesh or the spirit? Who's controlling your life? Who is, whose leadership are you submitting to? Who's guiding your actions at work or at home or with your spouse or with your friends or with that person of the opposite sex? Who is, what is, is, is dominating you in that moment? And how are you trying to resolve the conflict? If you're in that conflict and you're like, ah, I, I fail and I do good, and I, 
How are you trying to resolve that conflict? Are you saying, hey, I, I need to resolve to do this. I, I need some resolutions. I need more activities and activism. I need more information. I need some rules to stop me. I'm telling myself, do better, try harder, make this happen. You know, if, if I was really saved, then I'd have victory, and I must not even be saved, like, because saved pe- other people have victory, and I don't have it, so victory you know, is elusive to me, so I'm probably not even a Christian. Victory when you fight for grace happens when you walk by the Spirit. That actually, to not be under the law, like it says there in verse 18, the law actually encourages us to sin. So it's trying to like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make these rules. All of those rules inside of a sinful heart, it gives like power to the flesh and says like, oh, rules, I love those because I love to break them. You know, just like when I was in, about 10 years ago, I was in Vienna studying abroad for, for a month and we went to this palace and there was this green grass with a sign on it that says, don't walk on the grass in like five different languages. So I have a picture of me running in the, so we'll do it turn it around. So here's the, here's the photo here. Had my friend stand right here. Here's the, here's the sign. And behind it, you see me running. And I have this picture of me with that sign in the middle, like boldly proclaiming, I am a rule breaker. You know, like as soon as I saw that sign, I was like, dude, here's my camera. Just take, you'll know when to take this picture. You know, like that's what, the, when the flesh and the law get together, it's on. They're like, yes, we're like the dynamic duo of sin. We, we love being together because we just make things happen in this person's life. And Paul's saying, no, you get rid of the control of the law and you introduce the influence of the Spirit and it's he who gives you the power to fight and to have victory in the fight for grace. Now, from describing the conflict, Paul goes into a little more detail. So if you're taking notes, you're like, Okay, how do I organize this? I had a great PowerPoint, but it didn't work at all. So I'm just trying to make that happen by just talking. So verses 19 through 23, I've labeled the contrast detailed. The contrast detailed because he goes into detail. And I think the reason he says, here's this contrast between flesh and spirit. Let me go into detail because he gives this list to Christians. And I think he gives it to them, like it says in verse 19, to make it evident to them to show them, like, here's how you can evaluate your life and say, which one am I following? Or better, which one is influencing my life more? Is it the spirit or the flesh? So giving control to the flesh will be seen in a lot of ways. Look at verse 19. Works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, three sexual sins talking about you know, that here's one evidence of the work of the flesh. It's seen in, in sex outside of monogamous heterosexual marriage. It's, it's this work of the flesh. It destroys and damages you because it's sin. Then there's two, two words, idolatry and sorcery. These are religious sins, worshiping false gods. Or, or this word sorcery is the word pharmakia, which we get pharmacy from, which is this idea of, of using illegal drugs to connect with God or to manipulate the gods and, and get them to do what you want. All of these are works of the flesh. Then there's these eight, ver- these eight characteristics that describe sinful desires and sinful actions that lead to fights between people. So we've got sexual sin, we've got religious sin, and then notice what he says here. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, 
dissensions, divisions, envy. All of these destroy relationships that the flesh, when it gets its way, wants to fight, wants there to be some kind, I'm in charge and I'm the one that's right and you're wrong and keeps fights going. And then it ends with drunkenness and orgies, this kind of, I mean, you could kind of put that over, I don't know, every single college in America, like, like this, like that's the perfect description of college right there. And that's like, and like they've, college takes that to like an art form and makes that like the overall goal of college is to do that. Like that's like here, what we've, we've got is like, here's the flesh given full reign to do whatever it wants. And then it says in verse 21 and things like these showing this isn't an exhaustive list. And so then he says, you know, just in case you thought, Okay, he's writing to a list of Christians, so that means that this stuff is probably going on in this church, which means obedience is no big deal. You know, that kind of license creeping back in again. If I live like this, it's no big deal. Paul says, you can't live like this and still be saved. This can't be your overall character of your life. Verse 21, it says, I warn you, so that means like, listen clearly, like, like listen to this, don't take this lightly, I warn you. As I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That that, that idea where it says those who do such things speaks of a person's habits, their lifestyle, their character. It's describing, like I said, it's describing character, but in the Bible, character is not determined by stuff you do occasionally. It's not determined by out-of-the-ordinary, isolated, infrequent lapses. Character is determined by what you are mostly. It's determined by what you're living for. Not your best intentions, but what you actually are doing. So Paul didn't write this to inflict the struggling with doubt and despair, but to urge those who don't have any struggle at all to say, check yourself. Because if this describes your lifestyle, this describes like how you live and what you live for, if there's no conflict between this flesh and the spirit, because there's, there's no desire to please God at all, and it's all about pleasing you. And he says, the inheritance of eternal life, the inheritance of the kingdom will not be yours. You will inherit eternal judgment. And if this list identified you, then, then even now, like, stop listening to what I'm saying and just cry out to Jesus. Just like we heard earlier, like, cry out to him, beg him, like, rescue me. Because I'm learning as I compare my life to your word right now that there's, there's a, a contrast between me and your word right here, and I'm in trouble Jesus said, Luke 6, for no tree bears bad, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. It's just, it's, it's normal. You don't get, you don't get oranges from apple trees. You don't get perfect apples from sick trees. And the same is true here. And it's important to think about fruit because that's where Paul goes, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
And then he says, against such things there is no law. A lot could be said about these works of the Spirit. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave that for you with those workbooks. If you don't have one of those workbooks, talk to the, talk to the table out there. And these, these workbooks that, that, that Luke made for us are so helpful, especially this week's. There's a lot more stuff in this week's than, than any of the other weeks. There's a lot of, of, of exercises and, and work to do in there to, to kind of help you in your life to, to see these things, these, these, these fruits of the Spirit and the, these works of the flesh. Like it, it's a very, very helpful part of, of uh, so I don't, I don't want to go through all of that stuff because if you follow along those workbooks, you're, you're going you're gonna to do that this week. And if you don't, then please go find out where you can get one so that you can do it because, the, like I said, the exercises in, in there are awesome. But I just want to say that, that this, these, these nine things are, are what it looks like for the Spirit to be controlling, influencing, leading your life. It's the kind of life he produces. It's the kind of character he produces, which gives evidence. It gives proof that he's living inside of you and that you're saved. So if you think about fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, just like edible fruit that doesn't grow, it does fruit, you know, the apple's not sitting there going, grow, 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 grow. That there is energy and life and, and sustenance that's being poured into it so that it grows on its own. Just like for us, that's what happens with the Spirit. Like edible fruit that benefits those who eat it. Did you notice that those nine traits are really experienced in community? That joy. You can have internal joy that's on your own, but you're by yourself. You don't even know that. But people will see your joy. Patience. Being patient with yourself, that seems kind of strange. But being patient with others, that makes sense. Being kind, that's experienced by others. Gentle. Gentle with myself. Everyone knows that mean I use a loofah? I have no idea. But for this, like, here, it's really like I'm, I'm gentle with people. I'm kind with people. That, that, that this is lived out in community. All nine of these can easily describe Jesus and what the Spirit is doing is he is working to produce the life of Jesus in you. However, unlike fruit, each one of these nine fruit of the Spirit are also commanded of Christians in the, in the New Testament. So don't take this metaphor too far and say like, totally passive in my sanctification, I can just chill here. That God produces the growth, so I just sit back and let him do his thing. Like, no, it's not that, as we're going to see in a second. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit and the Christian, but it's the Spirit who initiates it's the, or leads. It's the Christian who follows. It's it, using the language of, of chapter 5, verse 18 there. Spirit, um, oh, I just said that, never mind. It's the frustration of every Christian that we're not what we should be, but by the Spirit of God, he is working to make us what we are. So there's hope here. That's, that's the idea is that you can read this and not go, okay, well, there's the battle and I'm in trouble. But you can say there's hope. And then finally, verse 24, he goes into this detail about the conflict and then he describes this glorious defeat of the flesh. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus has crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, if we're saved by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So to help us follow along, I've labeled this final section, the competition defeated. Spirit and the flesh and competition, one of these is going to be defeated. It will be the flesh and the Christian because, let's think about this idea of crucifixion. Obviously, we're not seeing that happen in Mesa, Queen Creek, Gilbert area, thank God. But if you can imagine that, you've got this guy nailed to a cross, and he's crying like these babies are crying. But what he's crying is probably like some of these babies, feed me, help me, I need help. You know, and so if somebody were to come along and, I don't know, put a little put a little thing on the cross so that they could put their feet on it so they can push up and get air, like that would help them. If someone were to give them some food, that would help them. If someone were to take and, and instead of just having the nails through their hands, they could take and put some, some rope around their hands, their arms, so that they could get more leverage, like that would help them. If they could get some water, that would help them. The idea, though, is that if a person is on a cross, they are going to die. It's not, they're not going to not die. The same is true with our flesh. Our flesh has been crucified. It says there, verse 24, not has been crucified, but that you crucified it. It says, we crucified, we have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That the moment you were saved, the control of sin in your life was dealt a death blow. You say, I'm believing in Jesus, I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Your flesh was given a death blow, but it's still sitting there going, help me. And every time you listen to its influence, you give it a little more strength to stay alive a little longer. And that's why in the New Testament, where it talks about, 1 Peter chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, it talks about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That you're your flesh is dead. It's on a cross. It's still alive. It's, it's screaming like, I need help. I need, I need some power. Give me, give me a little bit of control and it'll give me some more strength and I'll stay alive. And Paul's like, I'm die. As the Spirit controls your life, the more you say yes to the Spirit and no to the flesh, the more that there is this sense like the flesh is, is losing its control and I'm living or, as we have here, I'm finding victory in the fight for grace. So a couple things in closing. First, I had this quote for you before. As Jesus Christ is the primary person behind justification. The Holy Spirit is the primary person behind sanctification. Believer can't sanctify himself he could, any more than he could save himself down at the bottom. Holiness comes from the Holy Spirit. So we, we've got this idea that it's the Spirit working to produce the life of Christ in us. But then in the same book, in the same passage, just a couple paragraphs later, this author says, the power for Christian living is entirely from the Holy Spirit, just as the power of salvation is entirely in Jesus Christ. But both in the justifying work of Christ and in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, just, as, as, just in the work of salvation of Jesus and just in the work of growth for the Holy Spirit, man's will, our will, is active and commitment is called for. The Christian is not to sit on the sidelines, as it were, and simply watch the Spirit do battle for him. That, like I said, sanctification is this, is this synergistic reality, but it's not me and the Spirit are equal. 
It's that the Spirit is leading and I'm following him. And that he's the one who's in charge and he's the one in control. And so first, I think that's good motivation to be encouraged, right? There's hope. If you were like, yeah, I know that. I know that conflict. Be encouraged. God lives inside of you. You are not hopeless. You are not bound by, by some habit or some, some action. You, you are not bound by that if, God's, if God himself is living in you. Second, if, if God has been working in your life, like I talked to someone in the last service, they're like, God was heavy on me in that, in, in that service because he was, he was trying to motivate me and, 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 and influencing me to do something that he's been motivating me and influencing me to do for, for a long time. If that's been happening in your life while we've been talking about the guidance of the Spirit, then yield to that. Submit to that. Give in to that. And, and, do, and follow his leadership. And finally, embrace this aspect here. Embrace your role in your growth. It's not I'm sitting back and Jesus is doing everything. And it's not I'm doing everything and I'm, I'm, I'm growing on my own. It's like I said, the Spirit leads I follow. He produces change from the inside out. And as he does that, you will find victory in your fight for grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for not leaving us alone in this conflict, but giving us the power by your spirit to fight for grace. Thank you so much for this third way of liberty, not legalism, not license, but really seeing you actually fulfill your commands in our lives, growing in grace, not because we're doing better and trying harder, because you are producing this fruit in us. God, allow us to to see where you're leading and to yield to your leadership to follow you. Give us the the motivation, the determination to fight for grace, to fight our flesh and, and continue to give that control to the spirit as we live in relationship with him, as he guides and directs our lives into being more like your son and pleasing you because we are amazed at your grace. Your grace motivates us to say no to sin and yes to godliness because you have saved us. Thank you for grace. Use it to make us people after your own heart. In Jesus' name, amen.